This is The Cover-Up with Kyle Neufeld, a monthly podcast where a guest chooses a podcast to cover. And we're live. We have Brad and AJ here with us today. Brad is a software engineer, um, former gold miner, and AJ is a mass, has a master's in philosophy and does nannying, uh, which is pretty fun. I know both of you are big fans of John Green, who is the the main creator of the Anthropocene Reviewed. Brad, I believe that you're a large fan of the Anthropocene Reviewed itself. Would you like to tell us how that podcast, like what the format of that podcast is and what you like about it? Yeah. So basically, John Green, um, he writes an essay and then records each essay. And he basically reviews two things from the Anthropocene, which is like the time period which in which humans have been the, the kind of major driving force of everything. He usually reviews things and it can be anything from like, I believe he's done Diet Dr. Pepper to potatoes to... Uh, geese. Oh, yeah. Geese. Yes. I think he started with geese. He has reviewed, yeah, geese and velociraptors, I believe, as well, which seems like it's not the Anthropocene, but he has a pretty good reason for doing it. Um, mainly his son told him to do it. So I think that's probably why. <laughs> Kids rule the world. A human, that's what I've learned. A human was with, involved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was funny because like this morning I woke up and I was just like on my phone on the couch and then I heard like a way too loud honking sound. Like, not like the, there's a goose in the distance. It sounded like there was a goose in the apartment. <laughs> there's a goose and in I your look, head? <laughs> I look over and there's a goose on our patio. Like, we're in a little 10th floor of an, uh, eighth floor of an apartment building. And there's just this goose. And I had a slight terror. Because they're scary. They're huge. Geese are terrifying. They're, they're dangerous, so too. I've seen a goose uh, in a standoff with a two-ton bison. And the goose won, like they were face to face and the goose was kind of flapping its wings at the bison's face. And the yeah. bison was just like, no, this isn't, this isn't worth it. I'm going to lose this <laughs> and just kind of ran away. So I like the Anthropocene reviewed. Yeah. And he, he rates everything out of five stars, um, at the end of every, every essay that he writes. And I, I, I kind of like that, that idea that, that he's going through and writing everything, um, it's very Anthropocene, so meta, which is my game all the time. Can I quickly tell a funny story about how Brad arrived at his topic? Boats. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, um, as we might've mentioned before, I've never heard this podcast that we are covering the Anthropocene reviewed. And so a few weeks ago, Kyle asked, or no, not Kyle, Brad asked me what, do you think you're going to do? And I was like, Oh, you know, I'm thinking of doing boats. And he was like, Oh, that's too general. You <laughs> you'll, you'll want to do something more specific. You want to you know, like, you know, nail it down. And so, okay. Okay. And then I come back and I, you know, I'm going to do this, this hand cream working hands. And he's like, that's too specific, AJ. Like, <laughs> come on, you got to do something that you can actually write a real essay about it. And so then I was like, okay, you know, you tell me what you're doing because clearly I'm, I'm missing the mark. What, what's, what's an appropriate scope? He's like, well, I'm thinking of doing boats now. <laughs> Stole your idea. It's all my the plan all along. I got the good one. Boats. <laughs> it's a 
terrible idea, AJ. That'll never work. <laughs> and you know what? You wrote a very different essay about boats than I would have. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yours would have been good and mine is mine. <laughs> That's very sweet. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you end up deciding uh, writing your essay on, uh, AJ? I don't think I ever, I don't think I know. Oh, after he um, told me that he was stealing my original idea, I decided to stick with my second idea. I did it on the hand cream just to spite him, if anything else. <laughs> and it's really good, too. <laughs> so both boats and hand cream are a good idea. I've, I've changed my tune. I've, I've learned so, my lesson. <laughs> so Brad wanted AJ's ideas and AJ came up with two. And those are the two that you two are doing it on. That's yes. correct. Despite Brad's like really strong objections to, to both. both topics yes yep yes they're both terrible ideas and we did them anyways it's up to the listeners <laughs> to decide whether or not they are worth doing <laughs> <laughs> so let's go specific to general then uh hang creams google earth and then boats okay should i start yeah whenever you're ready okay if you have the misfortune of finding yourself at the till of a hardware store as I have found myself a few too many times over the last half a year, you are almost certain to find something kind of unexpected placed among the usual impulse buy suspects. Hiding among the gum and candy is a bright Kelly green tub of hand cream called O'Keefe's Working Hands. I don't want to condescend to you and tell you what's really at your local hardware store. You believe your experience, man. For all I know, your hardware store may not have it. But from my experience, at least, it's been at the till of every single one I have visited. From the rough-and-tumble contractor's desks at the local plumbing depots to, like, a gleaming brand-new Canadian tire, O'Keefe's is ubiquitous. But O'Keefe's isn't ubiquitous in the way that other grooming products are. You'll never find it front and center in a place that sells a lot of lotion and cosmetics. So if you look closely enough in the drugstore, it'll often be there too. There's no disguising the fact that this cream is catering to a niche market. Even though it's technically sold in more places than other lotions, it's not a generalized marketing strategy, but a very specific one. Unlike most cosmetic products, which of course I have no experience with, but I imagine are dreamt up in some chic boardroom full of fuzzy golden pillows, O'Keefe's was invented by a pharmacist, Tara O'Keefe. Her father was a diabetic rancher who, like most diabetics and most blue-collar workers, suffered from chronically cracked hands. Um, I don't know if you have much experience with the skin of diabetics who work with their hands, um, but I very distinctly remember the lengths that my grandpa would go to to deal with the cracking that he suffered. As a diabetic woodworker, the cracks in his hands were often more like big, awful gashes, open wounds, that he would sit at the kitchen table with a tub, uh, like a tube of crazy glue and pinch them shut day after day. Like, I, I can't even imagine that really, routinely having your skin just burst open and having to literally super glue it shut. So these are somewhat analogous to what I imagine the hands of Bill O'Keefe was like when his daughter decided to start helping him. Yeah, so because diabetes affects the extremities, leading to ulcers in the feet and cracks in the hands, 
it's not just ordinary dry skin exposed to too much sandpaper and chemicals. Diabetic skin can't maintain itself from the inside out. So Tara saw how much pain her father was in and set to work to find a solution. After testing a bunch of formulations in her kitchen over the years, she eventually settled on this one around 20 years ago. And now O'Keefe's has expanded into foot cream, body lotion, lip balm, and inexplicably a construction adhesive called Gorilla Glue. But it's the hand cream that you'll find everywhere. My first experience with this cream came after Brad and I bought our first house and started renovating it. I was under the impression that I already had a suitable collection of creams, but it turns out the lotions I already owned weren't very helpful when it came to the cracks and calluses that started to form after a few weeks. Then one day while I was buying more paint or something like that at Home Depot, I saw O'Keefe's at the till. It's frankly garish green tub with a bright orange logo promising, I quote, guaranteed relief for extremely dry cracked hands. Very to the point. I reacted exactly as the store designers expected me to, and I impulsively put it in my cart. When I got home, I tore into the packaging, and when I got it open, I noticed that there wasn't really a scent to it, which is, you know, not normal for lotions. But even less normal was the texture. It was quite odd. It's kind of almost like flaky refrigerated butter, but that makes it sound nice and it's, and it's not nice. <laughs> um, it wasn't silky to put on and didn't immediately leave my hands feeling moisturized and soft like the lotions I was used to. In fact, it was downright unpleasant, leaving my hands feeling sticky and coated. I was so taken aback that I was sure I wouldn't use it again. My immediate thought was maybe contractors just didn't know that ham cream could feel nice when you put it on. So they put up with this stuff because it's where they shop. But then I went to sleep and I woke up and what would you know? I saw more improvement after one use than I had seen from weeks of fancy perfumed gardener's salve and vintage metal squeeze tubes. I was hooked and I now have one in my purse for what I call emergencies hand cream emergency, as well as one in the bedroom to put on before bed. It's still unpleasant, so I try to only use it overnight so I don't have to be aware of how sticky it is. Though if I use a bit too much, even after a full night's sleep, I'll wake up with gluey hands in the morning. What interests me about this cream, though, isn't its efficacy, but the unique way that it's marketed. O'Keefe's could have very easily given into the basest impulses when choosing how to market this product. You know, if I come and tell you about this aggressively utilitarian hand cream sold primarily at hardware stores, people would probably rightly assume that it plays pretty heavily on gender dynamics in its marketing. Frankly, I'm still kind of surprised that it isn't called working man's cream, not working hands. It is marketed primarily to men, not because of its package design or its slogans, but by simply being the only product available in a male-dominated space, like the plumbing depot or hardware store. It's not like Gillette taking a product like a razor that's totally functional for either gender and claiming that it's the best a man can get. O'Keefe's slogan is hardworking skincare. And it's not like other traditionally feminine products, such as body wash, who try to market themselves to men, 
like Dove for Men by putting their product in sharply angled bottles with deep gray labels, rejecting femininity through design alone. O'Keefe's, frankly, seems to reject design altogether. I don't think I've ever seen a more successful product with uglier packaging. It's frankly awful. Maybe the orange and the green is for Ireland. O'Keefe sounds like an Irish name, but it's it's horrible. Um, there's no coded gendered language on the packaging that implies masculinity. It just uses plain language to describe what it does. It is guaranteed relief for extremely dry, cracked hands. Nothing more, nothing less. It's also surprising, given that it was developed by a pharmacist, that it didn't go the medicinal route with its marketing. There's a whole section of the drugstore given over to white bottles with blue lettering, trying to make their products seem authoritative and serious, proclaiming which medical associations recommend it and foregoing any specific branding in favor of aligning themselves with authorities we generally trust when it comes to maintaining our bodies. We have a few bottles of eczema cream in our house, and I couldn't tell you the brand of any of them. They're all just white and blue bottles that would look right at home in a doctor's office. O'Keefe's didn't go along any of the predictable routes for a hand cream. It didn't get marketed to women. It didn't get marketed as masculine it didn't get marketed as a medical product. I don't want to pretend that it exists in some sort of genderless utopia. In the About section of O'Keefe's website, there's a picture of Bill, but not his daughter Tara, who actually invented the cream. And the story seems more about him than her. It's the story of a tough rancher getting relief, not the story of how a woman's care for her family eventually birthed an international company. To be fair, though, O'Keefe's knows who they are trying to sell this product to. When I googled it, the first result wasn't that wasn't their own website was Canadian Tire. Their target market is someone who probably identifies more with Bill O'Keefe than with Tara, and perhaps they would have never been able to market this cream to women anyways. As I mentioned before, using it is a thoroughly unpleasant experience. You really have to need it to put up with it. But it's original. And above all, effective. Four out of five stars. All right. I uh, wrote an essay on Google Earth. Google Earth is a tool so simultaneously useful and intrusive, so mind-blowing, that I'm amazed people don't have daily conversations about it. I use it often for work, where I can zoom in on distant oil facilities in the middle of nowhere, sometimes to get familiar with the site remotely when I'm bidding a project in the area, Sometimes to plan a trip to the project location and occasionally to give directions to some poor trucker who got lost in the myriad back roads of oil country. Oftentimes I'll take what I call a Google vacation. I pick a place in the world I've never been. I hit the satellite view mode and then I zoom in on whatever landmark catches my eye. I like to zoom in on exotic capital cities of places like Nigeria or check out the coast where the Sahara Desert meets the Pacific Ocean. It's pretty incredible that anyone in the world with an internet connection can instantly visit anywhere else in the world. Last week, when I was preparing for this episode on the podcast, I, planned, I, I was planning on zooming out and to see what the largest man-made structure or feature was from space. 
I zoomed out further than I had ever bothered to previously and was dumbfounded to find that I had been limiting myself to earth when there were literally dozens of other bodies in the solar systems that were available to explore using Google earth. You can go to Mars, the moon, Mercury, the surface of Venus, and a surprising number of Jupiter's moons and Saturn's moons. I found that I could look at Pluto from close up and Charon, which is also a dwarf planet, um, about the same size as Pluto. I discovered that the features on these heavenly bodies were labeled predominantly with Roman gods and characters from Roman myths. Google Earth could not be possible before the onset of the Anthropocene. It is also a useful tool to experience the effects of the Anthropocene. If you zoom in on the northeast seaboard, you'll see an overwhelmingly um, you'll see an overwhelmingly monochromatic patch of squares, which you'll quickly realize are cities. Cities which leave no space or green before you hit another city. It's visible from space from many kilometers up, and you feel as though you can trace the virus-like spread of humankind's influence on the world. I was initially comforted when I scrolled west and saw green space for thousands of miles. However, the devil's in the details. When I zoomed in on any random patch of green, I was not greeted by nature and what ecologists might consider a healthy habitat. It was all farmland. Every bit of it. I tried, but I could not come across untouched land without cheating and just searching for a nature preserve or a natural park. Humans appear to have destroyed 90% of North America's natural habitats for wildlife, at least as far as I can tell from using the eye in the sky, Google Earth. Other man-made features dot the landscape, some with more significance than others. I zoomed in on a crater in Nevada, and I saw that it was near an airport in the middle of the desert. Nearby, what looked to be a military complex is joined by a road to the crater. I look it up. The crater isn't from a meteorite. It turns out it's a nuclear test site. The crater was made by man. It's visible from space, if only by a hair. It sticks out like a sore thumb from 10 miles up. I've done Google vacations to the Giza pyramids, to the Taj Mahal. I've seen the Sydney Opera House. I've run through the narrow streets of the Shinjuku district of Tokyo at night, uh, using the Google Street View. Humans have created beauty on Earth a thousand times over. But the largest man-made object I've seen to date when roaming the world from a satellite is a crater in the ground in a desert, as if a beast took a bite out of the Earth and took the mouthful of dirt and swallowed. Yeah, four to, four to five. It's pretty cool. The the Google Earth, not the not the nuke. Uh, nukes, I give one out of five. Zero out of five? I don't know. Nukes are pretty bad. I think bad. you can give zeros. So boats. With a planet that's mostly water, being able to move around on it is rather helpful. Enter boats. Approximately 900,000 years ago, we have good reason to believe that Homo erectus were using dugout canoes to travel between Bali and Flores in the Indonesian archipelago. Bali, which was intermittently attached to continental Asia, is well agreed upon as the last place you can go without a boat. 
we have found evidence for at least temporary inhabitation of Flores. Between the two islands, there's an 18-mile-wide stretch of deep ocean. So while we don't have any direct archaeological evidence of canoes, we do have evidence that Homo erectus getting, was getting somewhere otherwise unreachable. So it stands to reason that boats were involved. We're talking about something pretty old here, and I might be breaking the rules a little bit since this is technically pre-Homo sapien and maybe pre-Anthropocene, but I had no clue about that before I researched this. So I apologize to any podcast purists or Anthropocene purists, but really I only apologize to purists. When I was a kid, my dad and my nephew, yes, I have a nephew my age, and my brother-in-law and I would go fishing, and we would go to these North Saskatchewan lakes in what I thought were large boats. I was terrified. We'd be speeding across the water, bouncing, going in this little aluminum fishing boat. And I was always worried that I was going to get thrown out and land in the water. That really is the fear behind boats. Personally, I have a fear of water. Um, it's not a strong one, but it's, it's there. And while I was scared to be on the boat, the boat itself was actually the source of the relief of that fear. The fear of danger of drowning, and just in general, the fear of the unknown. Boats are a tool to face our fears and to overcome them. We are going and doing the unnatural thing, and we are a terrestrial animal venturing out onto the water. That evokes fear, but the boat simultaneously allows us to aggravate that fear and to alleviate it, to face it. And like any tool, I think boats can be a good thing or a bad thing. Colonizing most of the world by Europeans wouldn't have been possible without superior boat technology, allowing them to travel between continents relatively rapidly and in large numbers. It also transported unintentional things like disease and invasive species. It continues today. While invasive species can be devastating to natural ecosystems, the most invasive species we bring is often ourselves. While boats are an ancient invention, prehistorical really, they're arguably what makes globalization possible. 90,000... 90% of consumer goods are transported by boat, typically on mega freighters. The largest of these is named the Knock Nevis. It was constructed in 1979 and is over 450 meters long, almost half a kilometer. These ships are a major contributor to climate change, with 6% of carbon emissions humans make being given off by boats. It's unclear, though, whether transportation or fishing was the purpose of the first boats. Fish have been a staple food source for humans throughout time, and it's difficult to sustain a community on seafood with only what you can forage from the shore. But if you're able to go out in boats, the abundance there is undeniable, and perhaps more important, it's constant. First Nations groups in the west coast of British Columbia were able to build permanent settlements instead of having to follow their food like many of the other nations in the plains. This comes at a cost, too. In 2013, 93 million tons of fish were caught, and about 38 million tons of that was bycatch, which are fish caught and then never used as food. That means almost half the fish we catch and kill are wasted. 
Since the 1970s, we have seen almost a 40% decline in marine species, with over 29% of the world's fish stocks being overfished, 61% are being fully fished, and only 10% are being underfished. So boats give us a major source of security in how much food we can access, but our choices in how we have used them has led to these food sources themselves becoming precarious and insecure, not to mention the ecological ramifications. However, the biggest advances in nautical technology haven't been for fishing or for transport, but for the military. Britain wasn't anywhere near as powerful as their continental counterparts until they put their military efforts towards their navy. Once they did, Britain swiftly became the most powerful empire in the world. Because of her ships, as the saying went, the sun never set on the British Empire. A land-based military could have never accomplished that. But that was far from the first time a navy completely changed the game. The Punic Wars fought between the Carthaginians in northern Africa and the Romans in modern-day Italy were going very poorly for the Romans. They decided to actively change their naval strategy from protection of cargo to active naval engagement. They used their professional navy to cut off supply lines and break lines of communication, isolating the Carthaginian forces in both Spain and Italy from their home city. This culminated in the sack of Carthage itself, and eventually the domination of the Roman Empire across the Mediterranean. So for both Britain and Rome, boats led to empires. At a similar time in history, there was a Nazarene man who allegedly was able to walk on water. This spawned a fairly influential social movement. You may have heard of it. It's known as Christianity. But all joking aside, it is interesting that one of the major miracles basically comes down to not needing a boat. There's an underlying idea that boats give us this almost divine power to be more than humans are really supposed to be able to be. Boats give us empires, they give us the world. I think that's where a lot of our fascination in boats come from, the unnaturalness of it all. We don't belong in the ocean, so we, f so we build ourselves a tiny spot in the ocean, a moving island where we can belong. On the surface, it seems like we're conquering the ocean, but really, when we are in that boat, we are almost at the ocean's mercy. But maybe that talk of power, conquering, and mercy doesn't quite capture it all. What really gets us is the awe. I had my first kiss with my wife on top of a boat. We were in a small inlet on a cold night in February. We went up to the top to look at the stars, but instead saw that the ocean all around us was freezing over. A nearby stream emptied into the inlet and decreased the salinity just enough for a thin layer of ice to form. The next morning, we took a dinghy to shore and watched the ice break at the bow and spin off to the sides. Underneath the ice were hundreds of thousands of creamy white jellyfish, like frozen bubbles under the still surface. Well breathtaking, this landscape was dangerous and alien. Boats provide us with a border between us and the other, a glimpse at something outside our own experience. I give boats three and a half stars out of five. Uh, so thanks for coming on the show today. Uh, it was a pleasure. And we'll uh, yes, see Yes, it has you soon. been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, it's, Kyle. It's been a pleasure. 
Thanks, Kat. Meta. 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 Boat. Boats. Boat. Boats. Boats. Boat. Boats. Boats. Boat. 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 Raptors.